Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. My conversation today is with Ben Lovett. Ben is a founding member of Grammy Award-winning band Mumford & Sons. Ben does lots of things. He sings, plays keyboards and drums, writes and produces music, but he also develops venues, promotes shows. He owns a record label, music publishing. He's a restaurateur. He's an activist, a philanthropist, and an all-around interested and engaged global citizen. Ben visited Light's offices in the summer of 2019 for a conversation with our team about all of his varied pursuits on stage and off. It's a real privilege to be able to bring you this conversation, and I hope you dig it. Enjoy. Ben Lovett, welcome to Light. Thank you. Light, good morning. Thank you. I have been struggling with how to introduce Ben to everyone because I feel like anything I say doesn't quite capture um, everything that he's involved with and that he uh, that he does with his life. So I'm going to introduce him as a true multi-hyphenate. So Ben's not only a Grammy award-winning musician, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He's not only a business person, but he has interests in concert promotion and record labels and venue management and publishing and I'm going to guess the list goes on from there. Um, he's an activist, uh, a philanthropist, even a restaurateur if I got that correct. Um, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that we could add to that list. But I, I sort of, I've, I have a thesis now of Ben Lovett which is there's a through theme with all of these different activities you're involved with. And I think of you as um, sort of an engaged uh, connected citizen, and I think that is the that is the concept that runs through all of the different things you do. And as I looked at all these different activities, they aren't separate silos in your life. They all seem to bleed into each other. And so I want to explore that over the next little while as we talk. Yeah. Can I, yeah. How did you come into music? Just a point of difference. I was fourth. It's the fourth child. I wanted to be different. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find my niche to like separate myself from the pack. And so um, decided to, to pick up an instrument at age like five. I think I saw the opportunity to like get my parents' attention by doing something my, my siblings couldn't do. Yeah. And then I went for it, like I, I properly learned piano. To the point where I was like competing in piano competitions, which actually exist if you can imagine it, and, uh, and learned lots of instruments and, and yeah, I mean, I, in a nutshell, basically what happened is I went to the same school as Marcus from my band and we met at eight years old and we had our first paid gig at 12 and we were just like in it from that point, going out trying to get whatever gigs we could all over London with bar mitzvahs, diamond wedding anniversaries, you know, whatever. What and was the early repertoire? Um, it was anything from like Real book jazz covers through to Dire Straits. It was it was a pretty eclectic. Whatever the situation. Whatever they needed, was. like we would figure out how to play it. That's amazing. Um, when did you guys start writing? Did you write as little kids? No, mid mid teens. Yeah. That that kind of came in um, lyrically. I don't I don't know. Like 
composing earlier on when you think about just writing instrumentals yeah I guess banging on a few chords jamming around yeah early early days but um, yeah properly writing songs which I consider to be lyric and melody um, it's like mid-teens yeah of, of all the things that you are involved with now was music always the career path or you know what was your concept of what you were going to do did you think that way did you have an ambition oh, I was so ambitious I, I wanted to do everything I was like studying way too many subjects at school I, I, I was just trying to like do and do I'm kind of like one of those slightly overactive people and I was like that as a kid um, but I ended up, I, I actually thought I was going to be an astrophysicist for a while. And I uh, got into Stanford to study, to do a bit of astrophysics as, at 16. I completed like a summer program of modules that would have fast-tracked me through. Um, so you were that kid? I was that kid, yeah. <laughs> like, but like also wanting to do like the play and play rugby and play music. Yeah. I actually, I booked like the the end of year party at the local club at 15 I wasn't even old enough to be in there but I booked it and sold tickets to it and that was like the beginning of club promoting for me I I basically learned that the best form of the ultimate hustle is club promotion like booking shows is the most true form of like um, fast paced like flip you know Flip a buck, yeah. But I, I ended up being a club promoter pretty incessantly around London and built up some good relationships, and it led to starting Communion mm-hmm. when I was 18. How did, what, describe Communion to me. What, what, what was it when it started, and what has it become, and how do you think of it now? Is it a media company? Is it, what, what is Communion? Artist development first and foremost so um, I think Kev and I especially Kev was living with me at the time and he's the co-founder but I think the main thing was that we saw all of these really talented artists that weren't on any of the hot lists so they weren't on Ones to Watch they weren't on Pitchfork and yet they were great Um, and they were moving and and they were writing songs that felt like they would move other people and so we kind of just took like a very uh, like unfiltered lens to unsigned artists in London and realised when we started Communion there was 10,000 unsigned artists in London and we were like if we can just curate out of this like five of the best a month without just following what everyone else is saying is the best five artists and just do it based on what we know is good music then uh, maybe that will work and unbelievably within like two or three months we had sold out nights and then it expanded. We had we, we rolled it out into sixteen different cities all over the world. You know, I had like communion nights in Melbourne, unearthing the best new artists in Melbourne, and it kind of it kind of evolved on that platform level of people respected the fact that we were actually going out and finding these artists. And then we had the opportunity a couple of years into it to start developing our relationship with those artists. So that was when we started signing acts. Like, I, I remember being kind of 20, 21 years old, sat in a planning meeting at Island Records and looking around and people would turn to me and say, well, what do you think we should do? And they kind of were like, this is crazy. Like, what do you think we should do? <laughs> I don't know, how, how does this work? Um, 
and one of my favourite acts that I was most sort of involved in um, was Catfish and the Bottlemen, who are a great rock band. They're very honest, um, very real, and even though kind of sonically quite a long way from, say, Michael Kiwanuka, mm -hmm. like communion's not really defined by a genre, it's more about um, authenticity and songwriting. Yeah. Um, and, and so we're kind of like agnostic when it comes to what it sounds like, as long as it's real. And, and that band, you know, went from that stage to now doing arena tours and headlining festivals, and it's pretty and that's, wild. That's fun to see. Yeah, it's great. It's fun to see. So, a couple more questions about communion. When, when it starts as something that's such a manifestation of your own taste and your own ability to curate and understand your local scene and pick stuff out, how do you scale that across the world? How do you find, do you have to find the you in each city? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, kind of. Um, there's a bit of it that's, um, a little bit of it that I think can be taught. And I think from Kev's point of view, who's such a huge part of the, the curatorial part of communion as well, and, and really leads on the, the a and for the record label. He just does it purely based on heart. I kind of engage both both part both organs, um, but, but I think he really just kind of decides whether he feels it. At the at the risk of getting overly nerdy, well, how do you how do you how do you engage with an artist? What's your what's your business deal? Do you do a three hundred and sixty deal? Do you no, it's just unique contracts? unique to each artist. You know, I think we find that where we can get involved across the board, we have the most value. Uh, we can add the most value. Um, but sometimes we'll start promoting an act like we do um, Bastille's uh, UK touring at the moment um, he's signed and published by two different majors um, so if an artist turns you on and you can get in business with them and help them you just get involved yeah we'll get as involved in I think if you're going to get involved you might as well go all the way sort of thing Yeah. I don't quite understand why if you have a publishing arm and you believe in an artist why you would just sign them for records. And, and for those that don't understand the difference, like records is just the actual recordings of the masters that anyone could have written the songs. You know, like Mar Mariah Carey, it's a great records deal because she's, she's, she shifts because of her voice covering at all, like recording other writers' songs. But a lot of the artists that we work with at Communion write the songs that they record. So you're kind of buying into both sides of their business. Yeah. And um, and I, I don't understand why you wouldn't. So so yeah, with like Catfish, for example, we we worked on both sides, and it's great because the publishing side's kind of a little bit more admin heavy. It's like every time someone plays a song on the radio, a little piece of money goes into a pot that finds its way back to a, an office and then filters its way through. It's very much like that. Uh, records is much faster. It's like someone just bought something on iTunes and that cash hits the account. Nothing's as fast as live though. Like live is still kind of like going to Vegas. And I find it really interesting, especially in the States, knowing so many of the promoters around the country that the guys that have done well are exactly the people that I'd expect to see around a craps table in Vegas. That's right. Like they, are, they are wired that way. Yeah. Um, so to talk about Mumford a little bit, you guys have had a very distinct way of operating from the very beginning. 
it seemed very intentional, whether it was, you know, I think about the way you guys look after your fans. You know, you leave money on the table. You're not, you're not about, let's, let's take it all every time. You go away for a little while, and clearly that, that regenerates the creativity. It lets the audience miss you. I mean, there's, I don't know how strategically you think about it, but it's just doing it is a strategy. Um, and, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the ticketing thing. That's what we do. It's, it's how we've worked together. How did that work? Did you guys sit down and say, you know, we're going to be a band, we're going to be a different kind of band? Like, what, what, how intentional was this? Yeah, thing? the intention was there. Um, not very well articulated by us at kind of 19, 20 years old. I'd say about 90% of the good decisions that have been made have either been created or directed by Adam Tudhope and his team. Um, just got one of those managers who um, he's, so, he's really smart, he's got a good moral compass and he doesn't overstretch himself and believe it or not there's like no managers who are like that. He, you can't say those three things about managers in general. He, there's some really smart guys that have rosters of a hundred artists and so you, as an artist on their roster you get one day you know, every three months of their time. Um, Adam's got a roster of four acts and he's got a team of eight people. It's, like, it's insane how he's, how he's set up his, his stable and I think it was just a good match. I think we, we love um, the spirit of, of acts like Pearl Jam and Grateful Dead. Like, we saw bands like that and we were like, that's, you know, we respect that. We, we, we bonded as a band over the idea of keeping ticket prices low um, because we, as music fans, hated it when our favorite bands would price us out of a gig just because they got successful and so so there was like i'd say it was a it was a two-way street but but a lot of it was being driven by adam and his like i think vision for respectability in the industry and one of the ways of doing that is not kind of getting in bed with anyone you know we've kept our powder dry in a big way um even our record deals are license deals gentlemen of the road records owns the masters we signed ourselves to ourselves and then we licensed it for a time but no one can control what we do and so in the in the um in the ecosystem of your business um as an artist as a touring artist as a member of a band um a couple of questions about that how do you how do you all make decisions very democratically basically the majority of like day-to-day -day things, so show poster for Vancouver. We, we sign off on everything. I don't know Gavin is, but it's the pain of his life. Um, sign off on everything, we'll try to, and we'll, we'll, we'll do majority on tiny things, but anything that involves like, this is gonna have an impact on our reputation or an impact on money that we're making or anything like that, all four of us need to be on board with that. And uh, it can be a bit slow, but it means that there's no regrets about any decision we've made so far. Um, we all signed up to it and we knew what we were doing and we could see it. So it's good, you know. I've, I interestingly talked to a bunch of artists that haven't, haven't got that, either bands or I was chatting to a DJ who I won't name, but a pretty high profile DJ the other day. And he's in a 50-50 partnership with his manager. 
And he's like, I just let the manager choose what I'm doing. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I, he'll just tell me, tell me where I have to go. <coughs> this is like, this is a DJ who's like, festival headlining DJ. It's worth tens of millions. And he was saying to me last weekend, if my manager tells me I've got a gig to do next weekend, that's what I'm doing. I'm getting on the plane, I'm doing that gig. Like that idea is crazy to me. Like we're, we're, we say, you know, that, hey guys, do we all want to go to South Korea and play a show? Yeah, that sounds fun. Let's explore it. It's like a completely different format. But yeah, yeah. I, I, love, I love how we do our, th our, our thing. It's yeah. cool. And I just realized I sound really angry about stuff. I'm not angry at all. <laughs> I'm just sort of, just, pa just passionate, just passionate. <laughs> <laughs> how far, how, how far into the band's life cycle did it become clear that you were going to have to care about ticketing in particular? Because that does seem to be something every cycle you guys try to have some approach and solve for. Yeah, really early on, and that was partly led by Lucy Dickens, who's uh, now UK agent, UK rest of the world agent. Uh, she's now at WME. She's brilliant, um, and. She actually encouraged us to self-promote. So Mum and Sons, we put on our own show at Shepherd's Bush Empire. So that was a year and a half after we started the band and she explained the reason for it and it involved ticketing, it involved being able to control that experience. So um, yeah, I'd say pretty much our entire career, we've kept an eye on that stuff. Um, the secondary market was a really hot issue. Um, I think that we're on a course of correction now. I think lots of people have made are now aware that it's a hot issue, and and whether they they were originally a part of the problem, or new companies have bubbled up, you know, to help uh, that are, that are genuinely you know sizable businesses now that are actually focusing just on it, like Twickets, um, who are just like fans, fans. But yeah, but but you know, like. Um, it's 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 I, I'm I'm less fearful than I was uh, a few years ago when yeah. we were right in the hot seat of that and we had issues where um, a lot of secondary inflation was going on. I can't remember what the stat was. I think it was saying like our, the tour before this one, U.S. tour, um, the average ticket to one of our shows in North America was two hundred ninety-six dollars, and our face value average was eighty dollars. Does that sound about right, Gav? It's about that, wasn't it? I mean, that was like the, 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 and the fact that there was like a whole, the majority of that cash, which was coming out of hard-earned people's, you know, talking about everyone having like, starting on the same start line of a race, yeah. and not having it rigged. But that's why I get wound up about secondary tickets, because it's exactly the same thing about social justice. It's like, it's just not good enough that someone's had to, overspend for a manipulated market mm -hmm. and we it wasn't our fault and to be honest it wasn't really the venue's fault unless they are also the promoter who is also the ticketing company that also owns the secondary platform which obviously happens now um, how do you how do you deal with that on, in, when you wear your communion hat how do, is it does it not impact you as much because it's not the same level of intensity around your shows like how do you think about no, we have we have intensity around shows. I mean, we promote George Ezra and James Bay, and these are hot shows. Yeah. And um, we work with C tickets as a primary seller, and they are 
very transparent about what happens with the tickets and it's the best best that we can do. Um, we don't hide anything. You know, communion is quite uniquely uh, positioned where we where we just we'd much rather have open books. What are you involved with right now um, in terms of cause-related work that you're particularly um, interested in or you want to share a little bit with us about? Right, so this, this is actually, we, ne we didn't even get there, but venues. So I realized one of the big things was that um, at the end of the day, the venues had locked in the deal. So as a, as a promoter or an artist, we were like hit butt butting up against issues that were multi-year deals with venues. So I was like, okay, what are we going to do? Build venues. And, and I, 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 built, I, I started a, a venue in London three years ago called Omira, uh, which is a 320 cap venue, and um, built it as if I was, you know, building a dream experience as an artist. So there's like an artist loft with three different rooms and a shower and, you know, for a 320 cap venue in London, it's quite unique. Yeah. Um, fan experience is amazing. Um, separate uh, bar with like tequila selection and this is like with uh, I mean when I say tequila selection I mean like proper cocktails <laughs> um, and, and, and essentially it landed incredibly well and London like embraced it and we had some amazing shows in there um, and I, I think you know objectively it's the number one venue of its size in London and off the back of that I started getting some phone calls from people in February we're launching a 600 cap venue in London Later in the year, we'll be announcing two more venues, one smaller, one larger. Um, so there'll be four venues in London. Uh, well, the interesting thing about that, though, is when you talk about a portfolio of venues in a city, then you're in the artist's career for a long time. Yeah, you build a ladder. To be. Exactly, you build a ladder of venues, but that means that you can control what's happening on the ticketing side. You can strike those deals with the right people and slightly start to democratize it all again. And I'm really interested, I'm excited about, I think I might have just got to the inner sanctum of this maze and like, I'm starting to see what the middle's like and the middle does involve um, a few key things. It's property in terms of property value, it's taxes in terms of what the city will and won't support you doing as an operator and the way to do that is to control what's happening so from the, the bars and the parking and that stuff. Then you're a contributor to the city that can award you the license and the hours to operate and won't shut you down that's where these guys are really kind of that's the power center to it all and off that comes shows and fan experience and but but that's i think i you know i might just continue to go into the center and find that it's not that at all but right now it looks like it's about it's about the venues themselves and um it's amazing we talk yeah. about this all the time yeah well, and the other thing is, I think you're, you've, to bring it full circle, I think you've, your examples have all proven my thesis, so thank you, which cool. is the key to all of your sort of successes or your, your initiatives is that you, you are a connected, engaged member of whatever community you're operating in. What's the landscape here? What do these people need and want? What, what contributes to the community so that they want me there and we yeah. can present an opportunity together? That's, that's, a, that's a unique mindset. And I think the other piece that I find interesting is that not all artists, whether it's Mumford as a group, any of you as individuals, not all artists bet on themselves, right? They don't always bet on their vision or their ability to have 
taste or to make decisions that are right for longevity. And I think that's why sometimes it's, it's easier to, to take the check or, or that seems like the smart thing to do because you don't know if, you're gonna, if there's going to be a next tour or mm-hmm. if there's going to be a next shot at it. And I think just having the confidence in yourself and your vision and your art and your fans yeah. to, to, to bank on yourself um, gives you so much more optionality long term. So my favorite um, entrepreneurs in the world, either who I've spoken to or who I've read the biographies of, have gone bankrupt a few times. They uh, have bet the house uh, without fear of losing. And whether you own a business or you're just doing that with your next step in your career, I think that's a really healthy mindset. Um, I think you just, you, you kind of go, you go for it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's good. Um. <laughs> it All right, so there you have it, my conversation with Ben Lovett. Thank you so much for listening to Spotlight On, which is produced by Craig Snyder and edited by Michael DeCesar. Our theme music is Little Rock by my hero, Sonny Chirac. Big up to Ben Lovett, as well as Gavin Batty and Adam Tudhope from the Mumford & Sons team, as well as Aunt Taylor and the entire Light family. Fan mail? Hate mail and all mail in between can be directed to me at lawrence at light.com. That's L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E at L-Y-T-E dot com. If you dug this episode, do me a favor. Please share it with one friend. And if you really dug this episode, do me an even bigger solid and post a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. It means a lot and it really helps the cause. Thank you so much and stay in touch. Stay in touch.